We can do a bit of a character study on two very, very human characters that found themselves notoriously intertwined with the night of Jesus' betrayal. And so I invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And to make sure you're all with me, I'm going to do something that I don't always do. I'm going to put the scriptures on the screen uh, later on. Uh, But I'm going to read to you uh, bits and pieces of Luke chapter 22, starting uh, verses 1 through 6, then jumping down uh, to verse 21 through 23, then again on in 31 through 35. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And remember, we've talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Right after Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper to the disciples, he says this, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then as you get over to verses 54 and on of chapter 22, then seizing him, They led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Lord, as we look to your word today, I ask that we would gain a better understanding of how you work and what we can learn from two seemingly similar yet so different characters that were 
central according to your sovereign plan in the story of Christ's betrayal, crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection. Open our hearts today. Lord, I ask that my words would be few and yours would be exactly what we need to become more like you. In your name I pray, amen. A few years ago, and my wife will attest to this, I discovered a TV show. If you know anything about me, I really like TV. Uh, I like to watch it. I like shows that are well-written. I like shows that are creative. And there was a show, I think it was about five years ago that came out, and it came to Hong Kong about three, and it was called Lie to Me. Have any of you heard of that show? It's brilliant. It's this one man who, if, if you've ever seen the show House, has kind of that personality where he, he isn't exactly good in social settings, but he can read people better than anybody. He watches facial expressions. He watches eyes. He looks at all these things, and he's come up in the TV show with all of these scientific observations that help him discover who is lying. And he's always right, much to the chagrin of whomever he's out to get in, in this case. And I, I would always come home and watch that show, and Melissa would just look at me, and she'd think, you're a nerd. And she would tell me that, and she's right. But the more I watched the show, the more I got hooked on it. And I, 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 by the way, I like to watch people and try to see how they respond in different situations. So it was fascinating for me because in the past I'd studied anthropology and like sociology and those sciences, the social sciences. And so I started to think, I wonder where they got the idea for a show like this. And lo and behold, a few years later, I'm reading last month's Wired magazine, which is another magazine for nerds. And, uh, and in that, it talks about this initiative the government of the, of the United States of America is trying to accomplish where they're creating machines that read people's face, facial expressions to help discover through a series of questions whether they believe you're lying trying to get across the border. And it's this whole campaign to try to make America's borders safer. So far, it's not working particularly well, they've said. But... The research for that was based on a man named Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman was also the man behind the TV show Lie to Me. It was in his opinion true that if you could just see a person's face, you could predict whether what they were saying had malintent 70% of the time. And if you could see their entire body, you could know 100% of the time, according to Paul Ekman, not the apostle that they were lying. 100% of the time, he believes you could tell. Now, unfortunately for the TSA, the Transport and Security Administration of America, it hasn't proven to be successful. Uh, But for us, it's an interesting take on the idea of deception. Because part of Paul Ekman's basic theory is that we often convince ourselves we're lying. We often convince ourselves that the truth we're trying to tell someone else is indeed true. But he says, according to Ekman, you can't fool your body. You can't fool reality. And so he believes that no matter how good a liar you are, your body will give some sort of tell. So let's go back 2,000 years and let's find ourselves as we did a couple weeks ago in the upper room. And we see Jesus sitting down and he's just instituted the Lord's Supper. And he looks around the table and it's, kept, it's all been kept, as we discussed, very secret. No one knew exactly 
where it was, save two disciples that were sent ahead to make the plans and arrangements. And I believe that was, as I said then, I believe that was to keep Judas on the outside of knowing what was going on so the betrayal would happen at the exact right time. But after dinner, Jesus does look at the disciples and says, one of you is going to betray me. The hand of whom is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now I want you to think for a moment. Put yourself, now none of us are in this regard, the true son of God. We are all adopted if we've come to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. But we are not the son of God. But the son of God had sat around the table, given us the explanation of the new covenant in my blood. This, is, this blood is poured out for you for the Sorry too much coffee, for the forgiveness of sins, my body broken for you. That has just happened. And then he looks at this group of disciples, this group of men that has walked with him for the past three years and has to say, as he's said a couple of times already, one of you will betray me. Now, we have to remember that not only is Jesus fully God, but he's fully man. He would have felt this deeply. He would have known the pain and the anguish that was, anguish that was coming. And to have to look at his disciples and know that they're there, knowing that it's Judas. But you see something else interesting there. You see, in Luke's account, we're told that Satan came upon Judas. And we kind of get this idea that Satan almost made him do it. Well, yes, Satan did come upon him. God and how he works does not allow Satan to force us to do anything. God knew exactly what Judas would do and exactly what choice Judas would make. God is indeed sovereign. But when Satan came upon Judas... He did, I believe, what he does best. He cast a seed of doubt and he attacked Judas at a point of contention. And so when Jesus says, you're going to betray me, the act had already been done. Because in the beginning of chapter 22, notice that Judas didn't wait for the religious leaders to come to him. He went to them. And if you look over In a parallel passage, sorry, I've lost my train of thought here because I forgot to open my notes. If you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 26, what do we find out? Well, the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So he goes directly to them and asks the question, what's in it for me? When Satan asks and gets in our head, he finds ways, he finds weaknesses. He is indeed creative. He knows there are some things that humanity is naturally bent toward. With Judas, the keeper of the money, what better way to address him than to find a way to give him some money? 30 pieces of silver was all it would take, and Judas was in. That was enough for Judas to betray the Savior. And it worked out exactly according to how the prophecies said it would. 
But Judas was still very human. Judas still somehow had to convince himself that the money was more important than his relationship with Jesus, whoever he believed Jesus was. And so he did what he thought he should. He gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly, as we go on and we look at our two character studies today, you've got Judas, the betrayer. That's what we know him as. And we've got Peter, the rock. That's what we often know him as. But if you look at all four Gospels, when they list the disciples, notice who's always first. Peter. And in all four Gospels, guess who is always last? Judas. Each one of the gospel writers gave us a clue as to what was going on. And so when you get to the middle of Luke chapter 22 and verses 22 and 23, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Jesus hasn't said, Judas, it is you yet. So all the disciples, notice all of them began to question among themselves Which of them might do this? That seed of doubt was present among all of them. They all wondered, is it me? Am I missing something? Could I possibly do that? The answer was for 11 out of 12 of them, no. Not at that point. But for one, the deed had already been done. He had already said he would betray. And so the story goes on. And what do we find next? In verses 47 and 48, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He was taking them straight to Jesus. He knew where Jesus was. He knew how to find him. And he led the charge. And as he approached Jesus to kiss him, to greet a close friend with a kiss, Jesus asks him, are you betraying the son of man? Jesus doesn't hide who he is. Jesus doesn't run from his title. But he asks Judas a question that goes right to the heart. Are you betraying me, the son of man? You know who I am, is kind of the inference there. With a kiss, with that which is deeper than a handshake. Now, I like shaking your hands. But in that culture, this idea of a kiss was done as a sign of identity, as a sign of closeness one with another. It wasn't done out of any creepy inappropriate symbol. It was done as a greeting of affection and love, the phileo love, the brotherly love. And so for Judas to betray with that was just, it was just a knife in the heart of not only will I betray you, but I'm going to make sure everybody knows that it's personal. And so he comes to Jesus with that. What a condition of a heart. I brought up the TV show Lie to Me because I think it, it does a good job of explaining that deception is all around us. But in the case of Judas, you got to wonder, was he ultimately deceiving himself? Had he elevated money, esteem, whatever he thought was right 
over following his Lord and Savior. Yes, it had been foretold that a disciple, that that someone would betray Jesus, but I still believe that Judas was acting of his own volition. God can allow us to make a choice and still know exactly what we're going to do. He's sovereign. His actions and mind are that big. But for Judas, the condition of his heart was he saw an opportunity and whether, as one commentary writer said, that he was tired of waiting for the Messiah to do it the right way, the way he thought he should, so he took matters into his own hands. I don't know about that. I don't know the motives of Jesus or of Judas, but I know he chose to betray a man he'd walked side by side with for years, and he did it with a kiss. And so when you look over at Matthew chapter 27, we find that Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Interestingly, their response, what's that to us? Who cares? Not our problem. You did what we needed. We're done with you. That's your responsibility. Your conscience is your problem, not ours. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. And if you continue reading there, you find out that those same leaders didn't feel that that money, because it had shed blood, could be used in the temple. So they went and they bought the land, the field where Judas hung himself, and it became known as the field of blood. Why do we need to understand this? Because we see at that moment at the end, Judas knew he'd made the wrong choice. He knew he was wrong. And he had a choice of how he would respond to the blatant and total rebellion and disregard for God and sin that was in front of him. He says, I've sinned. He tries to make atonement for it himself by returning the silver, thinking maybe that'll make him feel better. But if you read between the lines, it doesn't. And so what does he do next? He hangs himself. The guilt had overcome him to the point where the only option he could see out, the only way out he could see was death. Again, I don't know all that Judas was thinking, but we know enough that he didn't see hope. He didn't see any way out of what he had done wrong, so he took his own life. This is significant for us today because, ladies and gentlemen, we are all sinners. And we have all made decisions in our past that if I were to ask you, you likely regret I've got regrets, and I suspect I'm not the only one. But what we do, even as Christians, is we tend to let those regrets and those past sins identify us, define us, and mark us as broken people. We tend to say, I couldn't possibly do this because I have done this. And I wonder if somehow we in our martyrdom, in our belief that woe is me, I am such a sinner. Yes, that's true. But we want so much to make everyone know that we are a sinner that we miss the rest of the gospel message. 
and we let that sin, we let the lie of the devil define us and lead us to further bad decisions and further sins. In the case of Judas, it led him to hang himself. He couldn't deal with the guilt. He couldn't understand seemingly all that Jesus is. And so instead of looking for hope, he hangs himself. He takes his own life. Again, God knew all of this would happen, but Judas is still very human, and we can learn from that. He was a broken man, and when he was faced with his own iniquity, with his own betrayal of Jesus Christ, he didn't see any way out but to take his life. For some of you, there are sins in your past that are just so deep and so harmful that you daily wonder, how can I go on? And you let them identify you. You let them mark you and you let the devil tell you, you are a sinner. That's all you'll ever amount to. And if you believe that lie, you're in the same boat as Judas. We identify with Judas and we try to build a case for him but we missed the case that he was guilty. He was a traitor. We can't candy coat it and say he was just doing what he was supposed to. He fulfilled prophecy, but I believe he had the choice. God can work. Satan is constantly working on all of us. It wasn't just Judas that Satan was tempting, trying to get him to do. Remember, Satan had tempted Jesus Christ. Satan will tempt each one of you right now and as often as he can. And when the Lord's work is being fulfilled, Satan will try to tempt us all the more to get us off the straight and narrow path. That's his objective in life. His goal is to keep as many people from discovering the freedom that comes from a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. And in Judas, he was able to be successful. But there's another man in this story. A man that's well known for us today and his name is Peter. And if you know much about Peter, there's a few things you can see. One is Peter thought out loud. <laughs> Good, bad, or ugly Peter, you never really wondered what he was thinking. Interestingly enough, Peter was the disciple whom Jesus reproved the most. Jesus spent more time correcting, based on the accounts in the Gospels, more time correcting Peter than all of the other disciples. <laughs> Peter often jumped in and then, as in the case of walking on water, he had the faith, but then when he realized what was all around him, he sunk. Peter was a guy that was emotional. He was a guy that was exciting. But he was also a guy that knew who he was following. In Matthew 16, Jesus has fed the 4,000. He's gone on and he says, but what about you? He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, I love it. Peter's the one that answers. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus reply? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The Lord has imprinted this truth on your hearts. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is what Jesus has said about Peter before the denial. Now, 
we have to remember that Jesus is fully God. And Jesus knows what is coming. And still, he looks at Peter and that's what he says. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter didn't even understand what that would have meant. And I kind of think that Peter being the personality that he seemingly would have been like, okay, cool. That's about all I, I think he would have known to respond. One commentary, Charles McCart- Clarence McCartney explains Peter like this. He says, his impulsive deeds, his frequent questions, his eager explanations and confessions, the praise and honor and rebukes that were bestowed upon him, his sometimes manly and sometimes cowardly acts, his oaths, his bitter tears, all this makes Peter the great companion and the great instructor of his fellow men and fellow Christians. Interesting. That's so similar of men, two men that walked with Jesus, had such different outcomes. And so Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And he answers, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Well, we go on, and I'm sorry, I've lost my remote, so I'm not going to walk over there, so you'll have to trust me. Because when we get back to Luke chapter 22, um, we find that Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he tells him this. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Okay, so hold on a minute. Satan has asked to sift who? All of you. Not just Simon Peter, but all of you. But I have prayed for you. What Jesus prayed for, we're we're not exactly told, but we know he's prayed for Peter. And when you have turned back, well, to turn back, it indicates that you have to have turned away first, correct? You with me? So even in that, Jesus is already saying, you're going to make a wrong turn. But already, before Jesus fully tells Peter what's coming, what does he say? He says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Be the rock. How cool is that? That Jesus, even though he's going through all of this, knowing he's about to be betrayed, knowing he's about to suffer like nothing you and I can imagine, takes a moment and encourages his disciple, Peter. (laughs) But then Peter opens his mouth. And he says, but Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Oh, Peter, do you have any idea what you're saying? Have any of you thought that? at times, you open your mouth and you're almost having this inner dialogue with yourself like, what did I just say? How do I get out of this and where's the nearest exit? There was one Sunday about a year ago, I'd gotten up really early and had gotten dressed before the kids got up and, and, I, and before my wife got up. And so I was getting dressed in the dark and I grabbed a tie. But as some of you know, I've had a friend that's using much of our house for storage at the moment, and he'd put a bunch of his ties in my closet, and I hadn't realized it. So halfway through a sermon, I looked down at a tie, and I have no idea where that tie came from. I'd never seen it before in my life. And so I'm going through preaching a message thinking, where's this tie from? 
Where did I get this? How is this relevant? And, and seriously, where did it come from? And it wasn't until later in the day that I realized what had happened. And the whole time I'm thinking, how did I get myself in this position? And by the way, this is the tie I wore it on purpose. No, I didn't. I didn't wear it on purpose, but this is the tie. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, so I'm wearing it. I say all that to say we get ourselves in these situations where we realize in the middle, how did I get here and how do I go out and oops. Now, I don't know if Peter felt the oops, but I do know that he believed and he was sincere. I don't question his sincerity that he would follow Jesus to death in prison. I don't believe that that was a major concern of Peter. He was in. He was all in. He knew Jesus was who he said he was, and that was that. But did he know what he was saying? Did he understand what was coming? No. And so the gentle rebuke of Jesus comes in the form of prophetically painful words. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three, you will deny three times that you know me. Think about that for a minute. Jesus had looked at the disciples earlier and said, who do you guys say I am and who speaks up? Peter. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are it. I get excited. You're the guy. You are the Savior. And so for Jesus to look at him now and say, and I quote, you will deny three times that you know me? Well, Jesus, I already said I know you. I know who you are. What would that have done to the heart of both of those men? Jesus having to say to the disciple that was so emotionally attached to Jesus and also the one that he would build his church upon, you're going to deny me. You're going to say you don't even know me. He didn't want to hear that he couldn't do it on his own. You see, what had happened in this moment was Peter got all hung up in the excitement of the emotion and said, I'm with you, Jesus. We're going to the cross or wherever death or prison brings us without any understanding of what Jesus was doing because he was thinking in his own logic and he didn't see that he couldn't do it on his own at this moment. The abandonment was there according to his understanding, not in, according to what Jesus was doing and had already set in motion. So Jesus steps back and tells him, you will deny me. And for Peter, the time had come when he had to wrestle with those words. What did Jesus mean? I'll deny him. No, Lord, that can't be. But see, Jesus is never wrong. And so as we turn over in the scriptures, we find out in Luke 22 and the parallel passages in John and Matthew that Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And this is the third of the denials. He'd done it twice before. The first time he denies, he said, I don't know him. 
The second time he denies, he says, I wasn't with them, with the apostles who were associated with Jesus, identified with him as his disciples. That's a very close identification. It's why we're so committed to discipleship Today, we want to be associated closely with the person of Jesus Christ so that we become more like him every day. And on the third, he said he wasn't with Jesus. Three denials. Three times Peter says, it wasn't me. The Lord then turned around. Somehow Peter had kept himself in close proximity. And he turned around and he looked at Peter. You ever been caught? You ever do something wrong and you know you're caught before the words come out of the mouth? And you're like, oh. And again, you're thinking, where's the exit? How do I get out of this one? Every once in a while, in that moment of being caught in the air of your ways, whether it's your wife, your friend, or whomever, you're struck with such a healthy dose of conviction that it breaks you to the core, that it literally hurts because you stand face to face with what you've done. And you have a choice of how you will respond. Judas stood face to face with his response, admitted he'd sinned, but walked out and hung himself. You see, I believe Judas confessed his sin, but he didn't turn and go the other way. The repentance was missing. He didn't turn. He took matters into his own hands and he hung himself because that fixes everything. Escape fixes everything. No, it doesn't. Peter, having Jesus stare right at him, remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him and said, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. The disciple that said, you are Jesus, the Messiah, had disowned the Messiah three times. Peter, a Jew, saying, you're the Messiah, but I'm going to deny you. I'm going to blaspheme against you three times. When he sees that picture in the mirror, he goes away and he weeps bitterly. And that's the end of the story. We move on, right? No, it's not. And we kind of gloss over what happens next. Because as we find out, Jesus, and this is no surprise probably to any of you, Jesus is indeed crucified, as was told. He does indeed rise again on the third day, victorious over sin and death once for all. And we can live in the glorious hope and light and love of the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But in this time period, we can also read through the Gospels and realize that Peter never ran away from his brothers, the apostles. He stuck with them. And on the third day when Jesus rose again, they didn't beat the women, but who were the next two there? Peter and John. Why is that significant? Because In the minds of us as humans, Peter had made a life-defining mistake, one that would define him for the rest of his life if we humans have anything to do with it. 
Why do I say that? Because we are really good at punishing one another for our mistakes, aren't we? We are really good at letting our mistakes define us and saying that person couldn't possibly get beyond this. Peter, knowing he had sinned, we realize he was still looking for Jesus. He was still moving toward Jesus. And he and John go to the tomb and they meet Jesus on the road. And then we get to the end of the story in John chapter 6. Not John chapter 6, sorry. John chapter 21. And Jesus is with all the apostles. And he looks at Simon Peter. And what does he say? He says, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Good old emotional Pete's back. Woo-hoo. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How many times? Three times? He asks him three times. Isn't that a bit odd that it's exactly the same number of times as how many times Peter denies Jesus Christ? Is that how many times Jesus then asks him, do you love me? Do you think maybe, just maybe, there was a little bit of restoration going on between Jesus and Peter in that moment? Jesus already knew Peter loved him. It wasn't for him. He knew Peter's heart. He knows our hearts. But in this moment, he was walking through an exercise with Peter. And Peter was hurt because Jesus had had to ask him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. Now, in this moment, this what we call in teaching circles, this teachable moment, most of us would have wanted to sit down with the offender and walk through everything they'd done wrong, every way they'd affected the harm and hurt they'd inflicted on others, and how their actions would set us back in all these different ways, right? And then we would come up with a way to move forward as best we can. Jesus Christ, having recently conquered death and sin once for all, had every right to sit down with Pete and have a chat and say, you messed up, buddy. You were wrong. Peter already knew that. Peter already knew exactly what he had done. He wept bitterly. He was cut to the core, but he continued following and waiting with the disciples. And so you get to this point, and Jesus does something interesting. Three times he says, go feed my sheep. What's that tell us? It says, move on. It says, go forward. You are not the sum of your denials. You are not the sum of all the mistakes you've already made. You are not to be forever identified just by your betrayal. But you will be forever known as the rock. How amazing is that? It's called grace. There isn't a lot of difference between Judas and Peter. 
They both denied and bitterly betrayed their Savior. One took matters into his own hands and hung himself. One walked with Jesus and toward Jesus, toward the empty tomb, and was restored. And Jesus, instead of punishing him further, offers grace. How do I know that to be true? Lucky for us, we have 1 Peter chapter 1. Wait, Peter? You mean that guy that betrayed Jesus and denied him three times? Yeah, he wrote a couple of letters. And in his first letter, this is what he says. And you don't think this is a man that has experienced true grace? Look at verses 3 and onward of 1 Peter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. You want to know a man that knows about mercy? Peter gets mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter got it and was living proof that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the one that had not just covered our sins, but remembered them no more. That is grace. Peter, the denier, is Peter, the rock on whom the church was destined to be built. But yet today, you and I have a proclivity to let our past, to let our mistakes, to let the wounds of others define us and our feelings toward them. And if we were honest with ourselves, we couldn't testify the words of 1 Peter chapter 1 because we don't live them out in true belief, in true faith. We don't know for sure that we are a new creation. We don't know that we've been given new birth. We don't live in the grace that Jesus Christ came to offer. You see, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus has washed my sins away. What about you? Is your past still defining you? Are you still trying to find a human way to solve an eternal problem? Or are you ready to sit at the feet of Jesus and know that he has already paid the price? He is what we call the atoning sacrifice. The lamb that was slain for our sins once for all. You don't have to live in the pain and identity of your past. You learn from it, absolutely. You deal with the consequences, yeah, that usually happens. But we live in grace knowing that we have been forgiven and set free. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you tell stories of who you are and help us understand more of you through broken people, through people like Peter, that indeed was a sinner saved by grace. I too am a sinner saved by grace. And I pray that my life that the lives of our brothers and sisters at AIC would be those that tell the story of your graciousness, 
of your great grace that we couldn't earn our way to you, but you gave your son, Jesus Christ, for us. Out of your great justice, we deserve hell, and you offer us eternity with you. Lord, I praise you for that truth. Amen.